Following a transfer. From atop the lower state theater building. Colossal, tremendous. of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. Dark Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Chester Langfield. Today's episode, H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. A young man's journey takes him to a dilapidated seafront town rife with deformed characters and ungodly secrets. Can he escape the terrifying town with his life? Or will the sinister residents of Innsmouth and their hellish allies drag him down to a horrid fate beneath the waves? But first, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, whenever I feel glum or weary after a long day in the studio, I get my energy back by lighting up a fleur-de-lis cigarette. The road to pleasure is thronged with smokers who have discovered the superior fragrance and mellow mildness of fleur-de-lis. You'll enjoy their pleasing, energizing effect, and they never get on your nerves. Fleur-de-lis. Smoke as many as you want. And now, Dark Adventure Radio Theater presents H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Folks who listened to their radios a few years back might remember news stories about a town in Massachusetts. Worldwide Wireless News, February 24th, 1928. Federal agents raid waterfront town in the government's ongoing war against illegal liquor. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. A secret investigation of conditions in the Massachusetts seaport town of Innsmouth culminated today in a massive Treasury Department raid. G-men stormed crumbling and supposedly empty houses along the waterfront, arresting dozens of people on suspicion of liquor trafficking. Wharves and warehouses used for illegal activity were set ablaze and dynamited by police demolition experts. Federal agent Jack McGraw oversaw the vast series of raids. The Bureau has been investigating Innsmouth for months based on information provided by concerned citizens. The government acted to protect the public safety and health. Agent McGraw declined to provide further details into the ongoing investigation, but residents of neighboring towns say that Innsmouth has long been a dangerous place. An outbreak of plague and resulting riots shook the town in 1846, and it's had a shadowy reputation ever since. The story quickly faded from the headlines. There were some rumors about disease and concentration camps, talk of military prisons and naval submarines off the coast. But there were never any formal charges or public trials, and no one ever saw the captives again. People forgot about Innsmouth. Except, of course, for one young man. Robert Olmsted. Remember me? Federal Agent McGraw. Yeah, of course I remember you, Agent McGraw. What's the Bureau of Investigation want with me? That Innsmouth business was a long time ago. Oh, just following up on a few things. Mind if I come in? <sighs> Look, I, I gave you my report right after it happened. You questioned me again last year at college. If you don't mind my saying so, Olmstead, you, you don't look so good. I say you've aged 20 years. 
Are you sick? Well, I've been through a lot. Sure, sure. You've had a rough time of it. I haven't been quite myself. Really? Why don't you tell me about it? You were the one who told me to keep my mouth shut about it. You can tell me. It's odd. Lately, I have had a craving to talk about it. <laughs> Telling it might help me to restore confidence in my own faculties, to reassure myself that I was not the first to succumb to a contagious nightmare hallucination. Yeah, it helps me too in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me. I still remember it all so clearly. How much is a ticket to Arkham? Return fare? No, just one way. One dollar fifteen. One fifteen? Too much. I'm afraid so. On holiday? Uh, a sightseeing tour. And making some antiquarian and genealogical inquiries too, but on a student's budget. You could take the old bus, I suppose, but ain't thought of much hereabouts. Looks like a terrible rattle trap. I've never been on it. Besides, it goes through Innsmouth, and people don't like it. Run, run by an Innsmouth fellow, Joe Sergeant. I suppose it's cheap enough, but I've never seen more than two or three people on it. Leaves the square in front of Hammond's drugstore at 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. Innsmouth? <laughs> I never heard of it. Maybe I'll stop off there, have a look around. What's it like? Innsmouth? Oh. Well, it's a queer kind of town. Used to be almost a city. Quite a port before the War of 1812. The rail line used to go there, but hasn't been a train on it in 50 years. More empty houses than there are people, I guess. No business to speak of, except fishing and lobstering. Everybody trades mostly either here in Arkham or Ipswich. Once they had quite a few mills, but there's nothing left now except for one gold refinery running on the leanest kind of part-time. Refinery used to be a big thing, and old man Marsh who owns it must be richer than Croesus. Queer old duck, though. He's supposed to have developed some skin disease or deformity late in life that makes him keep out of sight. Folks here about try to cover up any Innsmouth blood they have in them. <laughs> Why is everybody so down on Innsmouth? They've been telling things about Innsmouth for the last hundred years, and I gather they're more scared than anything else. Some of the stories that make you laugh about old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil and bringing imps out of hell or some kind of devil worship and sacrifices near the wharfs, but I come from Vermont, and that kind of story don't go down with me. Of course. You ought to hear what some of the old-timers tell about the Black Reef off the coast. Devil Reef, they call it. The story is there's a whole legion of devils sometimes seen on that reef, sprawled about or darting in and out of some kind of caves near the top. It's a rugged, uneven thing, a good bit over a mile out. Towards the end of shipping days, sailors used to make big detours just to avoid it. Well, that is, sailors that didn't hail from Innsmouth. One of the things they had against old Captain Marsh was that he was supposed to land on it sometimes at night when the tide was right. Maybe he did, for I dare say the rock formation's interesting, and it's possible he was looking for pirate loot and maybe finding it, but there was talk of his dealing with demons there. The fact is, it was really the captain that gave the bad reputation to the reef. Is it old superstitions and stories that turn people against it? No. The real thing that's behind the way folks feel is simple race prejudice, and I don't say I'm blaming those that hold it. I hate Innsmouth folk myself, and I wouldn't care to go to that town. Strong words. There's a strange streak in the Innsmouth folk today, huh? I don't know how to explain it, but it sort of makes your skin crawl. It, you'll notice a little in, in Sergeant if you take his bus. Some of them have queer, narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy, starey eyes that never seem to shut, and their, their skin ain't quite right. Rough and scabby, and the sides of the neck are all shriveled and creased up. Get bald, too, very young. The whole town's ugly? Mm, more <laughs> to it than that. Nobody around here, or in Arkham or Ipswich, will have anything to do with them. Is there a place to stay there? Hmm. Gilman House, but I wouldn't advise you to try it. Bet better to stay over here and take the ten o'clock bus tomorrow morning, then you can get an evening bus from there to, for Arkham at eight o'clock. What's wrong with the hotel? 
factory inspector stopped at the Gilman house a couple of years ago and had a lot of unpleasant hints about the place. Seems to get a queer crowd there, for this fella heard voices in the other rooms, though most of them was empty, and that gave him the shivers. Really? Yeah. That sounds unbelievable. I think I should go down there and take a look around. (laughs) Mm, Prying strangers ain't welcome around Innsmouth. That's why I wouldn't go at night if I was you. Well, I suppose I could wait and catch the morning bus. I guess a daytime trip couldn't hurt you. If you're just sightseeing and looking for old-time stuff, Innsmouth ought to be quite a place for you. Well, sounds like my kind of town. Uh, any place else I can learn about it? Mm, nobody around here would have much to say on Innsmouth. suppose you could check the library, but, but heed my warning, son. Don't go to Innsmouth at night. May I help you? I'm looking for information about a nearby town, Innsmouth. Innsmouth? What for? Oh, I'm traveling through the area, and the station agent told me about it. It sounds like an interesting place. (sighs) Oh, that Edgar. Interesting isn't the word for Innsmouth. You curious about their fishery? Refinery? The Plague of 46? The jewelry? Jewelry? Well, no, he told me they refined gold, but didn't mention anything about jewelry. Oh, yes. They make things in Innsmouth. Terrible, beautiful things. (laughs) I don't understand. Hold on a moment. Central. Maureen, would you patch me through to Miss Anna? Hello? Miss Anna, it's Annabelle. I have a young man here who might want to see the Innsmouth pieces. May I send him over? Innsmouth? How odd. May I send him over? He's not one of them. Now, would I have called you if he was an Innsmouth man? If he leaves now, you can send him over. I'll unlock the front. Our Newburyport Historical Society has some of the Innsmouth items. Miss Anna Tilton is the curator. She'll show them to you. You just have to make a right turn in front of the library and another right on Howard Street. It's at 112 Howard. Thank you so very much. Hello? So, you're the one interested in Innsmouth? I'm Robert Olmsted. The librarian said I should come see you. Step into the light. Let me look at you. Is something wrong? Where are you from, Mr. Olmsted? Ohio. I'm a student there. What do you study? History. I see. And your people? <laughs> what kind of historical society is this? <laughs> your people, young man? Uh, my father's family came to Ohio from Connecticut. My mother's from Arkham. Hmm. Now follow me. So you've never seen pieces from Innsmouth? They have one in Arkham at Miskatonic University. Ma'am, I've never heard of Innsmouth before today. This cupboard in the corner. Here, I'll switch on the light. You had to see it, Agent McGraw. It was an alien, opulent fantasy that rested there on a purple velvet cushion. It was a sort of tiara, tall in front and with a very large and curiously irregular periphery as if designed for a head of almost freakishly elliptical outline. The material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weird lighter lustrousness hinted at some strange alloy. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying the striking geometrical and marine design molded in high relief on its surface with a craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. Arresting, isn't it? I've never seen anything like it. The longer I looked, the more the thing fascinated me. 
At first I decided that it was the queer, otherworldly quality of the art which made me uneasy. This tiara clearly belonged to some subtle technique of infinite maturity and perfection, yet that technique was utterly remote from any which I had ever heard of or seen exemplified. It was as if the workmanship were that of another planet. But the longer I stared at it, the more uncomfortable I became. It was as if the strange pictorial and mathematical designs touched off some primal pseudo-memory. Among the reliefs were fabulous creatures of abhorrent grotesqueness and malignity. Those creatures. Some kind of ichthyic monstrosities. The Trachean, if you ask me. It's a positively blasphemous design. The fish frogs, they're... (laughs) I've never seen anything that smacked of such (laughs) unknown and inhuman evil. It tends to elicit strong reactions from people. Where did it come from? A drunken Innsmouth man pondered at the old shop on State Street for a pittance. And shortly afterward, he was killed in a brawl. This would have been around 1873. The society acquired it directly from the pawnbroker at once, giving it a display worthy of its quality. The society labeled it as of probable Indo-Chinese provenance, though. I have my doubts. Where do you think it came from? Educated folks around here believe it's part of some exotic pirate horde discovered by old Captain Obed Marsh. The Innsmouth Sea Captain? (laughs) The very one. Once they learned we had it, some members of the Marsh family made some sizable offers for it, but we've held on to it. It's impossibly unique. Oh dear, it's time I locked up. Have you ever been there, Innsmouth? Oh, good heavens, no. Well, (laughs) everyone here feels so strongly about the place. I've even heard people talk about devil worship. (laughs) Well, there's plenty of good cause. Those rumors are partly justified. A peculiar secret cult there has all but engulfed the Orthodox churches. There's a secret cult? The esoteric order of Dagon. It's a quasi-pagan thing imported from the Easter century ago, back when the Innsmouth fisheries seemed to be going barren. It's persisted among the simpletons because of the sudden and permanent return of abundant fish. It's a very religious community. Well, I'm going there. On the bus tomorrow morning. You know, have have a look around. Young man, you've just come from seeing the best Innsmouth has to offer. The rest is decay, squalor, and desolation. Shortly before ten the next morning... I stood with one small valise in front of Hammond's drugstore, waiting for the Innsmouth bus. In a few moments, a small motor coach of extreme decrepitude rattled down State Street. I bet you wish you'd never gotten on that bus. You have no idea. Excuse me, is this the... Out of the way. I beg your pardon. Is this the bus for Innsmouth? Better talk. Right, but but you stop in Innsmouth on the way, don't you? Why? You ain't from Innsmouth. No, I'm just visiting. (laughs) Sixty cents. The driver was a thin, stoop-shouldered man. Not much under six feet tall, dressed in shabby blue clothes and wearing a frayed golf cap. His age was perhaps 35, but the odd deep creases in the sides of his neck made him seem older. He had a narrow head, bulging, watery blue eyes that seemed never to blink, a flat nose, a receding forehead and chin, and singularly undeveloped ears. His long, thick lip and coarse-poured grayish cheeks seemed almost beardless. 
and in places the surface seemed queerly irregular, as if peeling from some cutaneous disease. As I extended a dollar bill to him, I noticed his hands were large and heavily veined, and he had a very unusual grayish-blue tinge. The fingers were strikingly short in proportion to the rest of the structure, and seemed of a tendency to curl closely into the huge palm. Your change. Take a seat. As I turned toward the back of the bus, I nearly tripped on the driver's feet, and noticed that they were inordinately immense. I wondered how he could buy any shoes to fit them. He was greasy and gave off the smell of old fish docks. Just what foreign blood was in him, I could not even guess. The day was warm and sunny, but the landscape of sand, sedgegrass, and stunted shrubbery became increasingly desolate as we proceeded. We presently drew very near the beach as our narrow road veered off from the main highway. At last, we saw the vast expanse of the open Atlantic on our left. The smell of the sea took on ominous implications, and the silent driver's bent, rigid back and narrow head became more and more hateful. Well, then we reached the crest of a long hill and beheld the outspread valley beyond, where the Minoxit joins the sea just north of the long line of cliffs that culminate in Kingsport Head. That instant, I came face to face with rumor-shadowed Innsman. It was a town of wide extent and dense construction. The vast huddle of sagging gambrel roofs and peaked gables conveyed the idea of wormy decay, and as we approached along the now descending road, I could see that many roofs had wholly caved in. Stretching inland from among them, I saw the rusted, grass-grown line of the abandoned railway. The decay was worst close to the waterfront, though in its very midst I could spy the white belfry of a fairly well-preserved brick structure which looked like a small factory. The harbor was enclosed by an ancient stone breakwater. Here and there, the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shore to end in indeterminate rottenness, and far out at sea, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of odd, latent malignancy. This must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning mixed with grim repulsion. The leaning, unpainted houses grew thicker and lined both sides of the road. All were apparently deserted, and there were occasional gaps where tumble-down chimneys and cellar walls told of buildings that had collapsed. Pervading everything was the most nauseous, fishy odor imaginable. Soon, I saw increasing signs of habitation, curtained windows and battered motor cars at the curb. Most of the houses were quite old, and as an amateur antiquarian, I almost lost my feeling of menace and repulsion amidst this rich, unaltered survival from the past. As the bus approached the center of town, I saw a large pillared facade ahead. It used to be the town's Masonic Hall. The structure's paint was now gray and peeling, and bore a black and gold sign so faded that I could only with difficulty make out the words, Esoteric Order of Dagon. <laughs> there was a, a squat stone church on the corner whose basement door was open. I shuddered involuntarily when I spied the first person I'd seen in Innsmouth proper. Uh, there was no real reason to be frightened. It was clearly just the pastor of the church, but he was clad in some peculiar vestments and wore a tall tiara just like the one Miss Tilton had shown me. Doubtless, it was the unusual dress of the Order of Dagon. The bus rolled at last into the large town square and drew up in front of a tall, cupola-crowned building with remnants of yellow paint. A half-a-face sign proclaimed it to be the Gilman House Hotel. Uh, thank you. 
Yeah, I'm planning to continue on to Arkham this evening. Is this where I'll find you? Eight o'clock. Hello? Anyone here? What's that? Who's there? Uh, hello. Uh, you're open for business? You looking for a room? Oh, no. Thank you. I'm visiting for the day and need a place to leave my luggage. Can I check it with you until the bus leaves for Arkham this evening? Visiting? Who? With just the town in general. Seeing the sights? Hmm. You can leave your bag. That'll be a nickel. Right. Uh, well, here you go. Uh, uh, listen, can I ask you about the bus driver? What's that? Never mind. I'll be back for the bag this evening. Mm. On one side of the town square was the Minuxet River leading to the ocean. On the other side was a semicircle of slant roof buildings. Lamps were sadly few and small. Well, I was glad that my plans called for departure before dark. There were a few businesses that seemed to be open, and a handful of sullen-looking residents milled about. In one of the least dilapidated buildings near the hotel was a grocery store of the First National Chain. Can I help you, sir? Um, why, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, could I have some cheddar, crackers, and two ginger cookies? Oh, and a pack of Florida Sure. Not many places to eat here. You new in town? I just got off the bus. I imagine you won't want to miss the next one out. It is a queer old place. Um, I, I'd venture to guess you're not from around here. No, sir. <laughs> I'm from Arkham, but I got transferred here by the company. They said they'd fire me if I didn't stay. Tough break. You're telling me. I can't stand it here. The people are strange, and there's that fish smell everywhere you go. Is there a public library or chamber of commerce? I'd like to take a look at some of the older buildings. There's nothing like that here. There's some real old churches off Main Street... Abandoned now, but I'd be careful going anywhere north of there. Careful of what? People here ain't friendly to outsiders. Some strangers have just plain disappeared. Whatever you do, stay away from the Marsh Refinery and the Order of Dagon Hall and any of the other churches north of the river. Why? Innsmouth folk are mighty secretive about what goes on in their services. My pastor in Arkham begged me not to join any church in Innsmouth. Well, no one seems very friendly around here. Uh, I was glad when I spotted you and took you for an outsider. Yeah, the locals are a strange bunch. I don't know what they do besides fishing and drinking. Bootleg whiskey, they drink like fish. It's like they're banded together in some sort of fellowship and understanding. Despising the world as if they had somewhere else to go. Those staring eyes hardly ever blink. Have you ever talked to any of them? Heard the voices? Not really. Oh, it's disgusting. You should hear them chanting in their churches at night. Especially during the main festivals or revivals. Uh, that'll be 58 cents. They just drink and go to church? And swim. All the time they have these swimming races out to Devil Reef. Seems all the young people do it. Well, the old folks cheer them on. <laughs> you know, you never really see old folks in Innsmouth. The older they get, the more they get that... Innsmouth look. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe the old ones die off. I don't know. The old clerk at the Gilman house, he's about the only old fellow I've ever seen. But then he don't have that Innsmouth look. Is it some kind of disease It gets worse as they get older? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. They'd never talk to anyone who wasn't from Innsmouth, and they... They'd have it, too. Yeah. yeah. Some of them have it extra bad. 
So bad they keep them hidden away. You get down on the waterfront north of the river, there's all kinds of terrible things. But don't go asking about, there's only one of them who'd say a word to an outsider. Who's that? An old fellow who lingers around the old fire station. Zadok Allen. Must be nearly a hundred years old. He doesn't have the Innsmouth look. It lives up at the poorhouse. He won't say a word when he's sober, but when he's got drinking him, uh, he can tell stories that turn your hair white. Crazy stories. The natives don't like it when he talks to strangers. What do the people do for money? The water around here is full of fish, but the locals don't seem to care much anymore. The only real business is the refinery. Old man marshes, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I've never seen him, but he's got a fancy car that sometimes goes by with curtains in the windows. The younger marshes run things now. Oh, Lord, his eldest daughter, she looks like a reptile and wears this ancient gold jewelry. Apparently came from the horde of some pirates or, or demons, depending on who you ask. But it's the marshes, the waits, the Gilmans and the Elliots that run the town. They have big houses up on Washington Street. Well, which way's Washington Street? Well, here, I'll draw you a map. It'll help. It's easy to get lost here. A lot of the street signs are down. Uh, be sure to keep an eye out for... Uh, be right with you, sir. Thank you. Don't mention it. Hey. Yes? I haven't seen you around here before. No. No, sir. You're an Innsmouth man. Uh, no, um, Arkham, actually. With a grocery boy's map to guide me, I decided to thread the principal streets, talk with any non-natives I might encounter, and catch the eight o'clock coach for Arkham. Thus I began my half-bewildered tour of Innsmouth's narrow, shadow-blighted ways. So you set out alone, on foot? I did. I passed close to the Marsh Refinery, which seemed to be oddly free from the noise of industry. Crossing the Minuxit on the Main Street Bridge, I struck a region of utter desertion that somehow made me shudder. Collapsing huddles of Gambrel roofs formed a jagged, fantastic skyline, above which rose the ghoulish, decapitated steeple of an ancient church. Down unpaved side streets, I saw the black, gaping windows of deserted hovels, many of which leaned at perilous and incredible angles through the sinking part of the foundations. I turned eastward toward the waterfront. The sight of such endless avenues of fishy-eyed vacancy and death, and the thought of such linked infinities of black, brooding compartments given over to cobwebs and memories and the conqueror worm, start up vestigial fears and aversions that not even the stoutest philosophy can disperse. Fish Street was as deserted as Maine, though it differed in having many brick and stone warehouses still in excellent shape. Well, I picked my way back over the tottering Water Street Bridge. North of the river, there were traces of squalid life, active fish-packing houses in Water Street, smoking chimneys and patched roofs here and there. Occasional sounds from indeterminate sources and infrequent shambling forms in the dismal streets and unpaved lanes. The people were more hideous and abnormal than those near the center of the town. Undoubtedly, the alien strain in the Innsmouth folk was stronger here than farther inland. I heard faint sounds. They are naturally to have come from the visibly inhabited houses, yet they were often strongest inside the boarded-up facades. I thought about the hidden tunnels suggested by the grocery boy and hastened out of that vile waterfront slum. I worked my way to the decayed patrician neighborhood of Northern Broad, Washington, Lafayette, and Adams Streets. You know, though these stately old avenues were ill-surfaced and unkempt, their elm-shaded dignity had not entirely departed. Fine old mansions lined the streets, most of them decrepit and boarded up, but one or two in each street that showed signs of occupancy. 
on the most sumptuous of these, in Washington Street with wide terraced parterres, I took to be the home of Old Man Marsh. I crossed again to the south bank of the river, where furtive shambling creatures stared cryptically in my direction. And Innsmouth was rapidly becoming intolerable, and I turned down Payne Street toward the square in the hope of getting some vehicle to take me to Arkham before the still distant starting time of the bus. It was then that I saw the tumble-down fire station. I noticed the red-faced, bushy-bearded, watery-eyed old man who sat on a bench in front of it, talking with a pair of unkempt-looking firemen. Well, this had to be Zadok Allen, the half-crazed, licorice, nonagenarian, full of hideous and incredible tales of old Innsmouth. You could have left then. Why didn't you get out of there? Oh, it must have been some imp of the perverse, or some sardonic pull from dark, hidden sources, which made me change my plans as I did. Curiosity flared up beyond sense and caution when I reflected that old Zadok must have seen everything which went on around Innsmouth for nearly a century. I couldn't resist. Maybe I shouldn't admit this to you, McGraw. Bootleg whiskey wasn't cheap, but it wasn't hard to find. Now, I ducked into a dingy variety store and purchased a quart. I brandished the bottle to gain his attention, and within a few minutes he was following me at a distance as I headed towards the deserted waterfront I'd visited previously. Hey, uh, mister! May I help you? My rheumatism's acting up. Perchance could ye spare a nip for my health? Oh, be my guest. Robert Olmsted. Zadok Allen, young squire. He followed me along the rotted wharves. Piles of moss-covered stones near the water promised tolerable seats, and the scene was sheltered from all possible view by a ruined warehouse on the north. Here, I thought, was the ideal place for a long, secret colloquy. The air of death and desertion was ghoulish, and the smell of fish almost insufferable, but I was resolved to let nothing deter me. If they tell me you know quite a lot about Innsmouth, yeah. they say you know about Innsmouth and its secrets. Can't say nothing. Lost my reputation. Immortal, just a bit. What? Do you think you can spare another taste? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, mind if I eat? Mm. There's more things than you dream in your philosophy. I've always said that if there's one thing a man must be, it's given his blessings. I endured nearly two hours of evasive gibberish, and I was on the verge of leaving him when I saw him fix his eyes on the low, distant line of Devil Reef. Devil Reef is the name for it. Wait, wait, wait what, 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 what did you say about the Reef? That's where it all began. That cursed place of all wickedness, where the deep water starts. Gate of hell, sheer drop down to a bottom no sound in line can take. No Captain Obed done it. <laughs> him that found it out more than was good for him in the South Sea Islands. What did he find? Everybody was in a bad way them days. Trade falling off. Mills losing business. Best of our men folk killed privateering in the war of 1812. Obed was the only one that kept on with the East Indies and Pacific trades. <laughs> Never was nobody like Captain Obed. Old limb of Satan. He'd tell about foreign parts and call folks stupid for going to Christian meetings. Says they ought to get better guards. Ones that in return for sacrifices would really answer folks' prayers. Told about an island 
where there was old stone ruins with carvings of faces that looked like the big statues on Easter Island. And there was a little volcanic island near there with other ruins and different carvings. Ruins all worn away where they'd been under the sea once. And with pictures of awful monsters all over them. Monsters? <laughs> he says the natives around there had all the fish they could catch and, and spotted bracelets and armlets and head rings made a, out of a queer kind of gold and covered with pictures of monsters just like the ones carved over the ruins on the little island. Sort of fish-like frogs or frog-like fishes that was drawed in all kinds of positions like they was human. Nobody could get out of them where they got all that stuff. And all the other natives wondered how they managed to find fish aplenty when they weren't known elsewhere abouts. Obed wormed the story out of the heathen chief. Wallachia, they called him. Nobody but Ovid ever believed the old yellow devil, but the captain could read folk just like they was books. Nobody believes me now when I tell him, and I don't suppose you will. Oh, come to look at ye, kind of got them sharp reading eyes like Ovid had. What did the chief tell him? Those Kanakis were sacrificing heaps of their young men and maidens to some kind of god things that lived under the sea and getting all kinds of favor in return. They met the things on the little island with the queer runes, and it seems them awful pictures of frog-fish monsters were supposed to be pictures of these things. They had all kinds of cities on the sea bottom, and this island was heaved up from there. Seemed there was some of them things alive in the stone buildings when the island come sudden to the surface. That's how the Kanakis got wind they was down there. Made sign talk as soon as they got over being scared and pieced up a bargain before long. Them things liked human sacrifices. Now, what they done with the victims ain't for me to say, but it was all right with the heathens, because they'd been having a hard time and was desperate about everything. They'd give a certain number of their young folk to the sea things twice every year, regular as could be. Also gave a, a carved knick-knacks they made, and the things agreed to give in return was plenty of fish. They drug them from all over the sea and a few gold things now and then. The natives met the things on the little volcanic islet, going there in canoes with the sacrifices, etc., and bringing back any of the gold-like jewels as was coming to them. At first, the things didn't never go on to the main island, but after time, they come to want to. Seems they hankered after mixing with the folks and having ceremonies on the big days, May Eve and Halloween. You see, they was able to live both in and out of the water. Now, the Kanakis told them how folks from other islands might want to wipe them out if they got wind of their being there. But they says they don't care much because they could wipe out the whole brood of humans. When it come to mating with them toad-looking fishers, the Kanakis kind of barked. But finally, they learned something has put a new face on the matter. Seems that human folks has got a kind of relation to such water beasts. That everything alive come out of the water once and only needs a little change to go back again. Them things told the Kanakis that if they mixed bloods, they'd be children as would look human at first, but later turn more and more like the things till finally they take to the water and join the main lot of things down there. Good God. And this is the important part, young fella. Them as turned into fish things and went into the water wouldn't never die. Them things never die except they was killed violent. Now, them islanders, they was all full of fish blood from the deep water things. 
When they got old and begun to show it, they was kept hid until they felt like taken to the water. Them as was born more like the things changed early, but them as was nearly human sometimes stayed on the island till they was past seventy. Folks as had took to the water generally come back a good deal to visit, so a man would often be talking to his own five times great-grandfather who left the dry land a couple of hundred years or so before. Well, everybody got out of the idea of dying and simply looked forward to kind of change that wasn't a bit horrible after a while. They thought what they'd got was well worth all they had to give up, and I guess Obed kind of come to the, think the same himself. Malachia, he showed Obed a lot of the rites and incantations as had to do with the sea things, and let him see some of the folks in the village as had changed a lot from human shape. But he never would let him see one of the regular things from right out of the water. In the end, he gave him a funny kind of thigamajig made out of lead or something that he said would bring up the fish things from any place in the water where there might be a nest of them. The idea was to drop it down with the right kind of prayers and such. While Akia allowed as things were scattered all over the world, so anybody that looked about could find a nest of them and bring them up if they wanted. Now, Matt Elliot, Captain Orbit's first mate, was against folks doing heathen things. He didn't like this business at all, and he wanted Obert should keep away from the island, but the captain was sharp for gain and found that he could get them gold things so cheap it would pay him to make a specialty of them. Well, come about 38, when I was seven year old, Obert found the island people all wiped out between voyages. Seems the other islanders got wind of what was going on and had took matters into their own hands. Suppose they must have had them magic signs, as the sea thing says, was the only things they was afeard of. <laughs> Pious cusses these was. They didn't leave nothing standing on either the main island or the little volcanic islet, except what parts of the ruins was too big to knock down. Folks all wiped out, no tracer, no gold-like things, and none of the nearby Kanakis would breathe a word about the matter. Wouldn't even admit there ever had been people on that island. And that naturally hit Obit pretty hard, seeing as his normal trade was doing very poor. It hit the whole of Innsmouth, too, because in seafaring days, what profited the master of a ship generally profited the crew proportionate. Oh, but he began a cursing at the folks for being dull sheep and praying to a Christian heaven as didn't help them none. He told them he knowed of folks as prayed to gods that gave something you really need and says if a good bunch of men would stand with him, he could maybe get a hold of certain powers that could bring plenty of fish and quite a bit of gold. Of course, the sailors that seed the island knowed what he meant and wasn't none too anxious to get close to see things like they heard tell on. But them as didn't know what it was all about got kind of swayed by what Obed had to say and began to ask him what he could do to set them on the way to a faith that would bring him results. Sadok? Man, must be. Wait, what's the matter? Do you, do you see something out there? Mixed with them, I don't know. Do you. Yeah, want, want some more? Why don't you finish the bottle? <laughs> Poor Mac Tried to line up the folks on his side Had long talks with the preachers <laughs> No use They run the congregational parson out of town The Methodist fella quit Never did see resolve Babcock The Baptist parson again Wrath of Jehovah I was a little critter but I heard what I heard And I seen what I seen Dagon and Astrith, Belial and Balzabub Golden Calf and the idols of Canaan and the Philistines Babylonish abominations, many, 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 tickle-ally, you farsons. Say, Zadok, let me have the bottle. I think maybe you've had enough. Don't believe me, eh? 
Then tell me why Captain Obed and 20-odd other folks used to row out to Devil Reef in the dead of night and chant things so loud you could hear them all over town. Tell me that, eh? And tell me why Obed was always dropping heavy things down into the deep water the other side of the reef. Tell me what he'd done with that funny-shaped lead thigmajig as Polakia gave him, eh, boy? And what did they all howl on May Eve? And again on the next Halloween? And why the new church parsons, fellows that used to be sailors, wear them queer robes and cover themselves in gold things, Obedbrung, eh? I, I, I don't know. Beginning <laughs> to see, eh? Maybe I'd like to have been me in them days when I seen things at night out at sea. Oh, I can tell ye I wasn't missing nothing of what was gossiped about Captain Obed and the folks out there on the reef. How about the night I took my pa's ship glass up to Helicopola and see the reef bristling thick with shapes that dove off quick soon as the moons rise? What shapes? Obed and the folks was in the dory, but them shapes dove off the far end into the deep water and never come up. How'd you like to be a little shaver all alone a-watching shapes that wasn't human shapes? I suppose one night you seed something heavy heaved off of Obed's dory beyond the reef. And then learn the next day a young fella was missing from home. Eh? Did anybody ever see hide in the hair of Hiram Gillum, huh? Did they? And Nick Pierce? Luli White? Nadonaram Southwick and Henry Garrickson? Hey? <laughs> Shapes talking sign language with their hands. <laughs> Them that ha- has had real hands. Wait, you think he was... That was a time Obed begun to get on his feet again. Folks see his three daughters are wearing gold-like things as nobody's never seen on them before. And smoke started coming out of the refinery chimney. Fish began to swarm into the harbor fit to kill. So it was just like what the Kanakis had done. I don't think Obed aimed at first to do no mixing, nor raise no young'uns to take to the water and turn into fishes. He wanted them gold things and was willing to pay heavy. And I guess the others were satisfied for a while. In 46, the town done some looking and thinking for itself. Too many folks missing, too much wild preaching at meetings of a Sunday, too much talk about the reef. There was a party one night as followed Obed's crowd out to the reef, and I heard shots betwixt the dories. Next day, Obed and 32 others was in jail, with everybody wondering just what was afoot and just what charge against them could be got hold of. God, if anybody looked ahead a couple of weeks later... Nothing had been thrown into the sea for that long. What happened? That awful night. I seen them. Hordes of them. Swarms of them all over the reef, swimming up the harbor into the Minoxid. God, what happened in the streets of Innsmouth that night? They rattled our door, but Pa wouldn't open, and he climbed out the kitchen window with his musket to see what he could do. Mounds of the dead and dying, shots and screams, shouting in old square and town square, new church green, jail throwed open, proclamation, treason, called it the plague when folks come in and found half our people missing. Nobody left said them as would join in with Obert and them things or else keep quiet. Never heard of my pa no more. So there was no plague? They just called it that. Everything cleaned up in the morning, but there were traces. Nobody kind of takes charge and says things is going to be changed. Others is going to worship with us at meeting time, and certain houses have got to entertain guests. They wanted to mix like they done with the Kanakis, and he for one didn't feel bound to stop them. He says they bring us fish and treasure and should have what they hankered after. We'd gone mad. Far gone. 
Said nothing was to be different on the outside, only we was to keep shy of strangers if we knew what was good for us. We all had to take the oath of Dagon. Later on, there was second and third oaths for some of us. Them as it would help special would get special rewards, gold and such. No use barking, for there was millions of them down there. They'd rather not start rising, wiping out humankind, but if they was gave away and forced to, they could just do that. We didn't have them charms to cut them off like folks in the South Sea did. Yield enough sacrifices and savage knickknacks and harborage in town when they wanted it and they'd let well enough alone. Wouldn't bother no strangers as might bear tales outside. That is, without they got prying. All in the band of the faithful, Order Odagon, and the children should never die, but go back to the mother Hydra and father Dagon. What we all come from once. Ia, Ia, Finglui, Migwinoff, Cthulhu, Rayleigh, Waganagel, Fatagan. It's not real, Sadak. These are just stories, legends. I was there. God, what I seen since I was 15 year old. Many, many Tigalele, you falsin. The folks as was missing and them as, as killed themselves. Them as tried to tell the outsiders was all called crazy. But God, what I seen. It had killed me long ago for what I know. Only I took the first and second oaths of Dagon off of Hobart, so I was protected. But I wouldn't take the third oath. I'd die rather than take the third oath. What was the third oath? Around Civil War time, when children born since 46 begun to grow up, some of them that is, there was a feared. Never did no prying after that awful night, and never seen one of them close up in all my life. That is, never no full-blooded one. I went to the war. If I had any guts or sense, I'd have never come back. I'd settled away far from here. After the war, it was just as bad again. People begun to fall off, mills and shops shut down, shipping stopped and the harbor choked up, railroad gave up, but they, they never stopped swimming in and out of the river from the cursed reef of Satan. And more and more attic windows got aborted up, and more and more noises were heard in houses that wasn't supposed to have nobody in them. In 46, Captain Obert took a second wife, had three children by her. Two has disappeared young, but one gal has looked like anybody else who was educated in Europe. Obit finally got her married off by a trick to an Arkham fella, as didn't suspect nothing. Barnabas Marsh, that runs the refinery now, is Obit's grandson by his first wife. Yeah, Barnabas is about change. Can't shut his eyes no more, and is all out of shape. They say he still wears clothes, but he'll take to the water soon. Maybe he's tried it already. They do sometimes go down for little spells before they go down for good. Ain't been seed about in public for nigh on ten years. God knows. What is it? Zadok, do you see something out there? Zadok, what is it? Hey, like all my coat. Hey, you! How'd you like to be living in a town like this? With everything rotten and dying, boarded up, monsters crawling and bleating and barking and hopping around black cellars and attics everywhere you turn. Hey, how'd you like to hear the howling night after night from the churches in the Order of Dagon Hall and know what's doing part of the howling? How'd you like to hear what comes from that awful reef every May Eve and hollow mass? Hey, think the old man's crazy? Hey, well, sir, let me tell you that ain't the worst. Cedar, stop. Please! Curse ye! Don't sit there a staring at me with them eyes! I say, Obed Marsh, he's in hell, and he's got to stay there in hell, I says. Can't get me. He ain't done nothing. I told nobody. Yeah, nothing. Let go of me! You just sit still and listen to me, boy. 
This is what I ain't never told nobody. I says I didn't get to do no prying after that night, but I found things about just the same. You want to know what the real horror here is, eh? Well, it's this. It ain't what them fish devils have done, but what they're a-going to do. They're a-bringing things up out of where they come from, into the town. Been doing it for years, and slackening up lately. Them houses north of the river betwixt water and Main Street is full of them. Full of them devils and what they brung. And when they get ready, I say, when they get... You ever hear tell of a shocketh? Hey, do you, do, you, do you hear me? I tell you, I know what them things be. I, I, I seen them one night. What, what is it? Did you see something? Get, 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 get out of here. They seen us. Get out for your life. Don't wait for nothing. They know now. Run for it. Quick. Get out of this town. Sadak! Good God, man. Why didn't you tell me this before? I didn't believe him, McGraw. It was an episode at once mad and pitiful, grotesque and terrifying. But, puerile though the weird allegory was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror added to my sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. The hour had grown perilously late. My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left Town Square at 8, so I walked rapidly toward the hotel where I'd checked my bag and would find my bus. Near the corner of Fall Street, I began to see scattered groups of whisperers. <laughs> when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman house. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, unblinking eyes looked oddly at me as I claimed my valise in the lobby. And I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. I stood next to an evil-looking fellow and was greatly relieved to see the bus arriving a few minutes early. Excuse me. Excuse me, please. <clears throat> one ticket to Arkham, one way. The bus is broke. What? Bus is broke. But you just... Ends in trouble. Not going anywhere. Oh. When will it be fixed? Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow? It can't be fixed tonight? No. Nope. Well... Is there some other way I can get to Arkham tonight? I'm expecting... There ain't no other way. Can't go nowhere. Have to spend the night. Gilman House will give you a room cheap. No other way. You again. Yeah, hello. Um, the bus uh, broke down. I got a room for ye. Well, my funds are rather... Uh, Large room, <laughs> top floor, no water, one dollar. Um, yes. Well, then that will be fine. Room 428, all the way up. My room was a dismal rear one, with two windows and bare, cheap furnishings overlooking a dingy courtyard. At the end of the corridor was a bathroom, a discouraging relic with ancient appointments. As far as I could tell, I was the hotel's only guest. 
I turned on the one feeble electric bulb over the bed and tried to read a newspaper I picked up in the lobby. I felt it advisable to keep my mind occupied. Dinsmith is decaying. Squalor. Gilman House, but I wouldn't advise you to try. I want to know what the real horror here is. My fancies got the better of me, and I went to bolt the door, but was disturbed to find there was no bolt. One had been there, as marks clearly showed, but there were signs of recent removal. No doubt it had been out of order, like so many other things in this decrepit edifice. Well, in my nervousness, I looked around and discovered a bolt on the clothes press, which seemed to be of the same size. I busied myself by transferring this hardware to the vacant place with the aid of a handy three-in-one device, including a screwdriver, which I kept on my keyring. The bolt fitted perfectly, and I was somewhat relieved when I knew that I, I could shoot it firmly upon retiring. There were adequate bolts on the two lateral doors to connecting rooms, and these I proceeded to fasten. I decided to read till I was sleepy and laid down with only my coat, collar, and shoes off. I took a hotel matchbook from the bedside ashtray and placed it in my pocket so that I could read my watch if I woke up later in the dark. That's when I heard it. At first I thought another guest was in the hotel, but there were no voices and the creaking was somehow subtly furtive. Was this one of those inns where travelers were slain for their money? Or were the townsfolk really so resentful about curious visitors? Without a shadow of a doubt, someone was trying to enter my room. I kept deathly quiet, awaiting the would-be intruder's next move. though I was. I knew the one thing to do was get out of that hotel alive as quickly as I could and through some other way than the front stairs and lobby. I rose to turn on the light. The power had been cut off. Clearly some cryptic evil movement was afoot on a large scale. Just what? I could not say. I tiptoed to the windows and saw only a sheer three-story drop to the cobbled courtyard. On the right and left, however, some ancient brick business blocks abutted on the hotel, their slant roofs coming to a reasonable jumping distance from my fourth story level. To reach either of these buildings, I would have to be in a room, two from my own, either to the north or south. I could not risk the corridor where my footsteps would surely be heard and I might not be able to access the room. I would have to go through the less solidly built connecting doors of the rooms and use my shoulder as a battering ram if they were set against me. My outer door I reinforced by pushing the bureau against it, little by little, in order to make a minimum of sound. My chances were slender, but I was fully prepared for any calamity. Even getting to another roof, I'd still have to make it to the ground and flee. The door on the south side of the room opened in my direction, but the door on the north was hung to open away from me. It was locked from the other side, but I knew that must be my route. For a moment, I simply held my breath and waited. 
Though eternity seemed to elapse, and the nauseous, fishy odor of my environment seemed to mount suddenly and spectacularly. I drew the bolt of the northward connecting door, bracing myself for the task of battering it open. The knocking grew louder, and I, I hoped that its volume would cover the sound of my efforts. I lunged again and again at the thin paneling with my left shoulder. The door resisted more than I expected, but I did not give in, and all the while the clamor at the outer door increased. I rushed into the next room and succeeded in bolting the hall door before the lock could be turned. But even as I did so, I heard the hall door of the third room, the one from whose window I had hoped to reach the roof below, being tried with a pass key. I made it into the third room and opened the window that offered the best access as they began an assault on the flimsy connecting door. The bedstead slowed their progress, despite their use of some kind of battering ram. The window was flanked by heavy velour draperies. I yanked at the hangings and brought them down, pole and all, then quickly hooking two of the curtain rings in the shutter catch. I flung the drapery outside. The heavy folds reached fully to the abutting roof, and I saw that the rings and catch would be likely to bear my weight. It's a miracle you got out of there in one piece. I know. I landed safely on the steep roof and hurried to a gaping black skylight. I glanced at the window I just left and saw it was still dark. There seemed to be no one in the courtyard below, and I hoped I could get away before the spreading of a general alarm. I clambered over the brink of the skylight and dropped down onto the dusty floor. Oh, the place was ghoulish looking, and I struck a match. I made it once for the staircase, revealed by its feeble light. The steps creaked, and I raced down past a barn-like second story to the ground floor. I reached the lower hall and darted out the back door to the grass-grown cobblestones of the courtyard. I walked softly across the courtyard, looking for a door that would give me access to the street. I looked across the courtyard to the Gilman House, where a large crowd of doubtful shapes was pouring into the street. Lanterns bobbed in the darkness, moving uncertainly. They did not know where I had gone. Their features were indistinguishable, but the crouching shambled gate was abominably repellent. One figure was strangely robed and unmistakably surmounted by a tall tiara. They found out from the hotel. The fishy odor was detestable, and I, I wondered I could stand it without fainting. I opened a door off the courtyard and came upon an empty room with closely shuttered windows. Fumbling in the flicker of another paper match, I opened the shutters and tumbled out onto Washington Street. I headed south, hoping to make my way to the road to Arkham. I walked rapidly, close to the ruined houses. Ahead of me was an open square, fully flooded with moonlight. My best option was to cross it boldly and openly, imitating the typical shamble of the Innsmouth folk as best I could. No one was about, though a curious sort of buzz or roar seemed to be increasing in the direction of Town Square. South Street led down towards the waterfront, and I hoped that no one would be glancing up it from afar as I crossed in the bright moonlight. Involuntarily, I paused for a second to take in the side of the sea. <laughs> Gorgeous in the burning moonlight at the street's end. Far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it, I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw intermittent flashes of light on the distant reef. Well, they were definite and unmistakable, and to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty cupola of the Gilman House, which loomed behind me, a series of analogous, though differently spaced gleams, which could be nothing less than an answering signal. 
What the whole proceeding meant, I could not imagine. Unless it involved some strange rite connected with Devil Reef, or unless some party had landed from a ship on that sinister rock. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me. I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were alive with a teeming horde of shapes swimming toward the town. All the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. I heard the hue and cry of organized pursuit. They were blocking off the southward highway ahead of me. I had to find another way out of Innsmouth. They were not following me directly. Rather, they were simply obeying a general plan of cutting off my escape. If they were patrolling this one, all roads out of Innsmouth were likely cut off. Then, I thought of the abandoned railway stretching off to the northwest. I'd seen it clearly from my hotel window and knew about how it lay. It seemed my only chance of deliverance, and there was nothing to do but try it. I consulted the grocery boy's map with the aid of one of my few remaining matches and soon started once more. I hurried along Babson Street until I reached Elliott Street. I heard noises and ducked behind a car. A sudden rise in the fishy odor nearly choked me. Then I saw a band of crouching shapes loping and shambling in the direction I was headed and knew that this must be the party guarding the Ipswich Road. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes and one wore a peak diadem. When the last of the band was out of sight, I resumed my progress, darting around the corner. You know, my greatest dread was in recrossing moonlit South Street. At the last moment, I decided I'd better make the crossing, as before, in the shambling gait of an Innsmouth native. When the view of the water again opened out, I was determined not to look at it, but <laughs> I could not resist. I cast a sidelong glance as I shambled toward the protecting shadows ahead. The first thing which caught my eye was a small rowboat pulling in toward the abandoned wharves, laden with some bulky tarpaulin-covered object. Several swimmers were also still discernible, while on the far black reef I could see a faint, steady glow, unlike the winking beacon visible before, and of a curious color which I could not precisely identify. A fishy odor now closed in again with maddening intensity. I'd not quite crossed the street when I saw a muttering band advancing into the open square less than a block ahead of me. At this range, I could see the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiarid, nearly hopped. I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, for they passed on across the moonlit space. No one was stirring on Bates Street beside the River Gorge, and it was an easy run past great brick warehouse walls. At last, I saw the ancient train station, or what was left of it, and made directly for the tracks that started from its farther end. The rails were rusty, but mainly intact, and not more than half the ties had rotted away. I hurried as best I could down the tracks which followed the side of the river gorge until I reached the long covered bridge which crossed the chasm at a dizzying height. I entered, stepping tie to tie. A cloud of bats flapped past me. About halfway across, there was a perilous gap in the ties. I risked a desperate jump, which fortunately succeeded, and I soon emerged on the far side of the river. The dense growth of weeds and briars hindered me, but also provided some covers. The tracks were clearly visible from the Rowley Road, which ran along the tracks before it cut across them. I glanced behind me, but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of decaying Innsmouth gleamed, lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight, and I thought of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then, as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice. I saw motion. A very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much and glistened too brightly in the rays of the moon. Where could so many persons be coming from? 
I thought of those extreme Innsmouth types said to be hidden in, in crumbling centuried warrens near the waterfront, of those nameless swimmers I had seen. I mean, did those ancient, unplumbed warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued, and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? Who were they? Why were they here? tracks cut through a low hill and were heavily overgrown. I struggled along at a very slow pace, and the damnable fishy odor again waxed dominant. Had the wind suddenly changed eastward so that it blew in from the sea and over the town? Something was coming up the Rowley Road. I buried myself into the brush, praying that while I could see where the road crossed the tracks, they should not be able to see me. I could not bear to see the source of the sound. I would keep my eyes shut until the sound receded to the west. But my resolution to keep my eyes shut failed. It was foredoomed to failure, for who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I thought I was prepared for the worst. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal, but nothing that I could have imagined. Nothing, even had I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in the most literal way, would be in any way comparable to the demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding, urging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant, saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that, that nameless, whitish gold metal, and, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers and, and had a man's felt hat perched on a shapeless thing that answered for a head. Good God. Did you ever really see them yourself, McGraw, up close? They were a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. And they hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. And I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. And but for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible, and their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting. The first I had ever had. You were lucky to get out of there alive, Olmstead. Lucky? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Now, sometime afternoon the following day, I awoke on the tracks. It was raining a little. I staggered out to the roadway, but I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odor, too, was gone. I looked, but didn't see anyone. And you walked the tracks all the way to Rowley? That's right. I reported it to the Arkham Police, but they said it would be an issue for the Massachusetts State Police. Yeah, I don't think they believed me. That's when they sent me to you. And it's a good thing they did. Are the rumors true, McGraw? About a submarine firing torpedoes into the deeps off Devil Reef? Let's just say that the government's been very thorough about cleaning up this mess in Innsmouth. In fact, that's why I'm here today. We've been keeping an eye on you. On me? We suspect you haven't quite put Innsmouth behind you. What do you mean? We know you've been doing some genealogical research. Oh, yes. Well, after Innsmouth, I gave up the rest of my tour. But when I got to Arkham, I tried to collect some information about my family. The curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me. So, your grandmother is Eliza Orne. Hmm. Something wrong, Mr. Peabody? Years ago, I helped, well, he would have been your maternal uncle with this same research. 
your grandmother's a bit of a local mystery among the genealogically inclined. How do you mean? There's been plenty of discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, since the ancestry of his bride was peculiarly puzzling. Your great-grandmother, she would have been. She was understood to have been an orphaned marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes. But she'd been educated in France and knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess. But that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people. That's the mystery? Well, you see, no one's been able to place the recorded parents of the young woman among the known families of New Hampshire. It seems the records may have been falsified. Some say she was from another branch of the Marsh family. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Marsh eyes? Oh, you know them when you see them. You've got them yourself. Anyway, she died early at the birth of her only child, your grandmother. Wait, are you saying I'm a Marsh? No doubt about it. I see. I went directly home to Toledo to recuperate from my ordeal. In September, I entered my final year at Oberlin, but you know that from when you and your men came to see me on campus. Mm-hmm. Just following up on some leads. Just like you've been following up on your family history, right? Well, you probably know I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland last year. I did not relish the notion of a week in that depressing household, but I hope to learn more family history while among the Williamsons. My mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child. My Arkham-born grandmother seemed strange and almost terrifying to me. I was eight years old when she disappeared. They say she wandered off in grief after the suicide of my Uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He'd shot himself after a trip to New England. The same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled by Mr. Peabody. Douglas resembled her, and I never liked him either. Something about their staring, unblinking expressions. My mother and Uncle Walter had their father's looks, though my poor cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, looked just like my grandmother. Yes, I spoke with your Uncle Walter. He's been very concerned about his son, your cousin Lawrence. And you. Your uncle showed you some things that once belonged to your grandmother, didn't he? Oh, yes. Agent McGraw. He did. So, Robert, researching the family tree, huh? I'm just putting the pieces together. Well, I have some of your mom's old family papers on the orns. She had a safe deposit box. I think there's stuff in there, too. We'll go downtown and have a look. You feeling all right? I heard you fell ill back east last summer. Uh, it's just nerves, really. I'm better now. Thanks. I, I meant to ask, um, how's Lawrence doing? Oh, he's still in the sanitarium over in Canton. They do the best they can for him, but... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what can you do? Going over the letters and pictures on the orange side, I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. I struggled not to think about it. My uncle took me to my mother's bank. The safe deposit box is here. When you've finished, just lock it up and we'll return it to the vault. Thank you. Why did Mom keep papers in the safe deposit box? Oh, she had some of her grandma's old jewelry. There we go. Now let's see what she had in here. Here's someone's marriage certificate. Uh -huh. Photos. What do you think? A graduation? Yeah, it could be. Uh, what's in that cardboard box? That? Oh, well, it's that's probably where she put your great-grandmother's old jewelry. Really? I wonder... Oh, they're weird old things. Grandma would look at them, but even she wouldn't wear them. Really, they're hideous. Hideous? May I? Are you all right, Robert? You're shaking. I'm fine. Fine. I think this one's a tiara. See? <sighs> From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding 
An apprehension. Is that what you came here to learn, Agent McGraw? Your great-grandmother was a Marsh whose husband lived in Arkham. And Zadok said that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick. He also muttered about me having eyes like Captain Obed's. You know we were never able to question Zeta Callan. By the time my men raided Innsmouth, he had already disappeared. Imagine that. Obed Marsh, my own great-great-grandfather. Who, or what, then, was my great-great-grandmother? I think you already know the answer to that, Olmstead. You should have left it all alone. No, Agent McGraw, it's you who should have left it alone. Olmstead, put down the gun. What are you doing? No sudden moves, please. I bought this pistol months ago, intending to kill myself, as my Uncle Douglas did when he, too, learned the truth. Easy now, Olmstead. This is all nothing to get worked up over. The, the jewelry might have been bought from some Innsmouth sailor, and that staring-eyed look you thought you saw in the faces of your grandmother and uncle is sheer fancy on you. Then why did my uncle kill himself after an ancestral quest in New England? No, if this is all sheer fancy, then why are you here now? We can help you, Olmstead. Put down the gun. No, McGraw, there's no help for me anymore. For more than two years, I fought off this sheer fancy. Oh, in the winter of 1930, the dreams began. Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, oh, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams, they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their sea-bottom temples. Olmstead? Some frightful influence I felt was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage. Some odd nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. I saw my face in the mirror with mounting alarm. My father and uncle seemed to notice it too, for they began looking at me almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? Is that why they called you, McGraw? Homestead, please. We all just want to help you. Give me the gun, please. Don't do anything foolish. One night I dreamed I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and, and welcomed me. She had changed. See, as those who take to the water change and told me she'd never died. Instead, she'd gone to a spot her dead son had learned about and had leapt to a realm whose wonders he'd spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For eighty thousand years, Pithyalei had lived in Yohanithle. She'd gone back after Obed Marsh was dead. Yohanithle was not destroyed when your pathetic submarines shot death into the sea, McGraw. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The deep ones can never be destroyed. Oh, for the present they rest, but someday they will rise again for the tribute great Cthulhu craves. It will be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. Oh, they've planned to spread. Oh, and have brought up that which will help them. But now they must wait once more. Olmstead, I'm warning you for the last time. I see you have a gun as well. Do you think I'm frightened? <laughs> last night I had a dream in which I saw Shoggoth for the first time. That's a sight to set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. Yeah, this morning the mirror definitely told me I have acquired the Innsmouth look. I'm not afraid of you, McGraw. I feel queerly drawn toward the sea deeps instead of fearing them. 
See, I hear and do strange things in sleep and awake with a kind of exultation. I do not need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, you and my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium like my poor little cousin. Stupendous and unheard of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. Yeah, relay, Cthulhu Fatagan. No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that madhouse, and together we shall go to marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many columned Yohanneth lay. And in that lair of the deep ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, brought to you by our sponsor, Fleur de Lis, the cigarette made from the finest tobaccos. Fleur de Lis, a boon for a breathless age. Until next week, this is Chester Langfield reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look, and save the last bullet for yourself. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branning and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branning, Casey Camp, Mark Colson, Dan Conroy, Steve Coons, Matt Foyer, McCarran Kelly, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, John McKenna, Josh Temke, and Noah Wagner. Tune in next week for Fates of the Ancients, a Nate Ward adventure. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 77.